This is the Right Now Podcast with Sarah Werner. Episode 139, Taking Down Hustle Culture with Amy McNee. Hi, friends. Welcome back this week. I'm so happy to not perhaps see you, but to be here in this space with you to talk about creativity and writing and journaling and all manner of things. I have a wonderful, exciting guest for you today. This is Amy McNee. And I first discovered Amy, I think, through Instagram. And I think that's how a lot of people discover Amy. And I'll have links to her Instagram and everything in the show notes for today's episode so that you can follow her too and be inspired. But I discovered Amy through Instagram. And through that Instagram, I discovered not only her podcast, which is called Unpublished, which you should also listen to, but her courses. And so I took Amy's journaling course. And if you remember, I did an episode of the Right Now podcast ages ago after I took Amy's journaling course. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have this new journaling habit and it's beautiful and amazing. And it's all because of Amy. So I'll also put links to that uh, if that's still being offered in the show notes for today's episode. I feel like uh, this introduction is getting kind of long. So I would love Amy to say hello to you. So welcome to the show, Amy. I'm so happy you're here. Thank you, Sarah. It's such an honor. As you know, we love your work so much. And it's just so good to get to sit down and talk to you about all the important things. Well, same, same. I am so excited you are here. Um, I would love to start off with a question about your podcast uh, and more specifically the name of your podcast. Your podcast is called Unpublished. It is. Can you tell me a little bit about why you decided to start that podcast and where that name came from? Of course. So I've actually been doing my podcast for quite a long time now. I probably started it like maybe five years ago. Um, and it was, I now do it with my partner, but I was doing it on my own when I first began. And I was really moving through a lot of rejection through with my novels. I was receiving hundreds of rejection letters in the process of submitting my, my fiction novels to publishers. And I was navigating what it meant to be a writer who was unpublished. Um, and so initially when I started off the podcast, I was recording this journey of what it meant to be creating without that connection. And, you know, life's had it's twists and turns and my journey's changed now. Um, and I am, I am now published and I am now connecting with so many people, but it's, it really, it still resonates with me. And I still feel like it, it's a part of me that I want to always be tending to and mothering and mothering in other artists too, because we are all, no one is exempt from that process of rejection. I love hearing you talk about these things because you talk about them so gently and with such grace and love. And I want to ask you about the concept of mothering in just a little bit. But before we do that, so how did you take that journey from being unpublished to being published? And we have your your first fictional book, I believe, coming out soon, which we'll talk about in just a little bit as well. But yes, uh, tell us a little bit about that journey been so big and it's really really on my heart as um as I've gone through this stage of particularly publishing my fiction books so in the 
in the journey that I've been on. I've published nonfiction, but as of today, the pre-order is out today. I'm finally, you know, publishing my fiction novel, which is my original craft. So it's been a really big journey, and it's really one that's on my heart right now. And specifically today, it's super on my heart as I move into this like new moment, a new path, I guess, on this journey that I'm on. And I wrote a big article actually about what this journey was like from being unpublished to choosing to self-publish, um, and it was really tumultuous. And it was at times very painful and I had to rewrite so many narratives that were keeping me really, really small. You know, I felt like because publishing houses didn't want my work, that I wasn't being chosen, that meant that I had been, I was a failure. And for years and years and years, and you know, I'm still dealing with this story to this day in this very moment. I believe that by picking myself and by self-publishing, it meant that I was a failure mm-hmm. and that the idea of like self-coronation and self-choosing was the second rate option. And it really, it was conceding to the fact that nobody else wanted you. And I've just been on this process of shifting that narrative and understanding that choosing yourself is like not only way harder than being chosen by someone else, but it's way more profound. It is way more meaningful and it has a way greater impact on your life. I feel like I have a little bit of insider information because I've listened to your podcast for years. And so I've kind of followed you on this journey. But hearing you share this now at, at this place where, and I don't want to say you've necessarily arrived because I think that we're still, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, we're still getting there. But what I really love in, in hearing this is how your mindset has changed. And I think that you, the places that you have been are, are places that my listeners are in right now. They're struggling mm-hmm with, you know, feeling like self-publishing is valid or legitimate. And and I love your response to that. What was it that flipped that switch for you that made you realize that, wow, I'm choosing myself and that is way more powerful than having some, you know, randos at a publishing company choose me? I wish it was a, a flip switching. I feel like that would have almost been, well, it would have been quicker. <laughs> It's, it's, it's taken years. Like it's literally mm. taken years. So I stopped submitting uh, this book that rules up held by no one probably four years ago. She was finished and submitted and rejected. She got picked up for like a hot minute and she got dropped and it was a real roller coaster. And so that probably ended maybe three or four years ago. And since then, I've just been on a journey of having to understand that I wanted to blame external forces for why I wasn't being able to connect with my fiction. And I did for a really long time. You know, why don't you see me? Like, I know, like, with my whole heart that I've written a really good book. But why don't you see me? And I was so angry. I was so angry, Sarah. And like, that is really valid. Because the rejection process is brutal. If we're talking specifically authors, it is really f***ed up. And that anger, if anyone's moving through this, is really valid. But it just wasn't serving me because for four years, nobody read my fiction. (laughs) Like it just wasn't taking me anywhere. And it had to come to a point where I was like, I can blame the gatekeepers and I can blame a really f***ed system all I want. But like, it's just not going to get me to where I want to go. And where I want to go is I want to be an author who, who writes fiction and connects with people. And the reality that I was in my way and I wasn't giving myself permission and beyond the gatekeepers not giving me permission, I was like sending myself rejection letters every single day that I didn't self-publish my book. You know, it was really, it was really heartbreaking to realize that like I was mourning rejection from publishers, but in reality, like every day that I chose not to do this was just me doing exactly the same thing that they were doing to me. That's so insightful and so heavy and... 
Wow. I just, I want to let that sit with my (laughs) listeners for a second, because I think a lot of them are feeling that anger and that resentment. And why don't you see me is, is something, oh, it's, it's so hard. And knowing that you have to make yourself be seen is just such, it, it can feel so overwhelming, especially if you're not versed in marketing and all of that stuff. There, there's a lot there. One of the things that I've kind of heard throughout your speech as we've been having this conversation is you talk about your own narrative. And, and I really love that. You talk about your narrative as a story that you're living while you're creating these other stories. Can you tell us a little bit about that mindset? And just as a curiosity for me, does that come from the, the journaling? Yes. So okay. when I talk about like the narratives that I have, I think I'm guessing that I kind of came to this idea or concept I'm sure it's stolen from someone but like I would watch my journaling and there were stories that I was telling myself so nobody wants to see me I create in a vacuum I can't connect the fact that I want to be a writer is shameful I'm a child that won't grow up you know they're all stories and as creators as storytellers like it made sense to me to kind of understand the way that my brain was working through this kind of lens of narrative and all all these narratives that I was telling myself, you know, we are storytelling creatures. This is how we function. Like this is how our minds function. And it helped me to be able to get a bit more control and, and also a bit of distance from the narratives so that I could be like, okay, that's the story I'm telling myself. Well, is it true? You know, can I really know that it's true? Can I tell a different story? Is it getting in my own way? Is it keeping me small? These are the questions that I was able to ask when I was able to label them as narratives. There's something so both powerful and frightening about that. There's one thing, it's one thing to be completely in charge of forming your own reality, which is awesome. But then there's also, oh my gosh, I'm in charge of forming my own reality, which is horrifying. I don't know. Do you struggle with that at all? Or I don't know. Is that, that's not a good question. No, no, no. I understand what you're saying. (laughs) Okay, good. Okay. It's a, an overwhelming realization to understand that you have power over the stories and that it's not an external force or it's not something in, intrinsic. It's not like an absolute truth that, you know, that these narratives exist within you. And the idea that you can change them is a huge responsibility and it's very overwhelming. For me, that's why journaling was such a, well, it completely changed my life because it was a really um, controlled and easy way for me to show up and approach these narratives and rewrite new narratives. I did it every day in the morning. It didn't have to be serious every day. You know, so frequently all I did was just take deep care of myself every day. But it was a method in which I was able to rewrite my narratives and choose the life that I wanted to live. And it was quite a structured way to do that. So instead of like being overwhelmed with such a giant concept, which is, oh, I can retell the story of my life, I really saw it in the form of writing. And for writers, I mean, you do not need to be a writer for this practice to, you know, change your life. But as writers, we're really good at this. And it's such a beautiful method to start changing the stories that are keeping you small. Mm, It so is. I want to ask, how did you get started journaling? Like, are you one of those people who's been journaling their whole life? Or did you start recently? Or how did this happen? I have diaries from from when I was very, very little. Um, I've always written 
um, like I have diaries from when I'm like four or five years old. Like I, I would write to my mum every night letters in this journal, journal and she'd write a letter in reply to me when she went to bed and I'd read them in the morning. That was my first kind of form of journal. But my first consistent practice, I've been journaling, I think it's like 1,290 days or something in a row. And that's the journaling that's changed my life. And I came to that through Julia Cameron's The Artist Way. Through her mm. pages, I had just uh, my uh, rules upheld by no one had just been re- dropped by a publishing house. I had just lost my job. I moved in with my in-laws. My depression was next level. I had nothing to do in the mornings, and so I had had Julia Cameron's The Artist Way on my shelf for years. I was like, all right, took it off my shelf, and every single day I was like, just read a tiny bit of this book, Amy, and you'll have done something at least. Unemployed, deeply in debt, rejected artist that I was. And then I was like, oh, this journaling thing, like, I'll, I'll just try it. And then I literally have not stopped. I love that so much. It's wild. And it I love that so much. Everything. Tell me a little bit more about how it has changed things. So we've talked about Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way on the show before. It's fantastic if you haven't read it. Tell us a little bit about how you adopted these morning pages and really made it your own practice and, and what that meaningful meaningfulness <laughs> looks like to you. It's a word. So I actually... I don't know how I made it my own. I think it took time. You know, at first I was like, Julia Cameron says, write three pages. So I'm just going to write three pages. And But then as I started understanding what the process looks like specifically for me, I could see how like vile I was to myself. And I started witnessing the stories that I was telling myself because I had that kind of distance. Like it's very hard to witness our narratives in our, within our mind. So many of us and completely reasonably, you know, find it hard to distinguish ourselves from our thoughts. But when they're on the page, there is distance. And so, you know, I'd write it down and I'd reread that sentence and be like, holy shit, I'm, I'm so mean. And I was able to start looking at these narratives. And then what happened was I, at the end of this journaling, like I, like I was never holding myself back. I let myself articulate what I was feeling. But at the end of these journaling sessions, I found this new voice that just appeared on the pages because I couldn't leave my journaling after being such a horrible person to myself. But at the end of my pages, I just found this like new voice. And she would always be like, it was just this gentle, divine, magical voice that would come in at the end and be like, you know what, baby, I know this is so hard, but I'm so proud of you for just you know, getting by the day. And she was mothering me and she was taking care of me. And it came quite instinctually for me to just take care of myself at the end of my journaling practice. And this way of writing just developed more and more. And and I called it mothering because it felt like a really maternal, gentle, caring voice that appeared on my pages. And she was the rewriting of the narratives. She would sit me down at the end of this like vile, you're a piece of shit, why the fuck do you think you can do this? And she'd be like, well, you know what? You were just really mean to yourself and you don't deserve that. She was just this completely new voice that just rescued me from depression, from narratives that were just so cruel, from all the roadblocks that were in my way. So if we are in a place where we find ourselves saying unkind things to ourselves, what does it look like to develop a more caring and nurturing voice toward ourselves? 
I love this topic. It's really complex. It's not just as simple as, you know, saying kind words to yourself. A lot of us specifically don't have very good relationships with our mums, which can make it even harder. Um, so I often encourage people who have issues with the mother figure in their lives not to call it mothering, to call it something else. It's just learning to be gentle with yourself. And that does not come easily for, for many of us. And so, I mean, I've got books and courses about this and I offer, you know, phrases and words to use because we've just got to get used to what it's like to talk to ourselves differently. And it's going to be very uncomfortable for a lot of us initially. You're going to not believe the words you're saying. It's not going to feel good. It's going to feel cringy. It's going to feel gross. But this is the process of changing narratives. It's never going to be comfortable, unfortunately. So I always just encourage you to I mean, I love to do the practice of sitting down with my inner child or like a younger version of myself and being like, what did you really need to hear? You know, what weren't you receiving as a kid? And for me, that looked a lot around taking rest and time out. Like you don't have to work so hard. Like the, I really needed to hear that as a kid. You know, you're doing enough right now as it is. Just, you know, take a break, take a breather. My mothering voice says that a lot. So if this is something you want to play with, I really encourage you to sit down with like a young version of yourself and just be like, what did you need? And you might have received a lot of what you needed and you can use that too. But often the really powerful is in the stuff that you didn't receive as a kid. And it's now your turn to reparent yourself and to mother yourself through the journaling pages. I'm over here nodding. Those of you who are listening cannot see me, but I have just like my, I'm getting a headache because I'm nodding so much. This was one of the things, and again, I'll link to Amy's journaling course in the show notes for today's episode. It was definitely life-changing for me. What would you say to people who, okay, I, you know, I would love to talk to myself in this loving, nurturing way, and I would love to rewrite my narrative and even change how I interact with myself, but I don't feel like I deserve it, or I feel it makes me feel guilty, or I, I feel like I'm just lying to myself. Mm. I mean, I see you, and this is the, what it is like for so many of us trying to change that narrative, and this resistance is a sign that you know it's time to go on this journey and it's gonna feel really uncomfortable and at times you're gonna feel really guilty and really icky and like you don't deserve it and you need to notice that so often what happens in my journaling is something like that happens so if my mothering voice comes in and says you are pushing yourself way too hard baby like just get a cup of tea and cancel your plans because you need to take a rest and then my inner critic comes in and says you f- think you can take a f- rest when you do x y like and that in it and i write it down And I will write it down on the pages and I'll be like, this is what I think. Then my mothering voice comes back. You know, I really need you to take a breath, Amy, because this language is totally inappropriate. And these standards you wouldn't put upon anyone else. And I create dialogues like that. So it allows space for both of us on the pages. So the two narratives kind of interact with one another. And you can, it's not like you're ignoring the feeling of not deserving it. You're interacting with that feeling and acknowledging that it does exist. Right. And engaging with it. And I feel like, yeah, when you do that, wow, you do get some agency in that conversation. Whereas before, I think the inner critic, you're just letting it tell you things. I realize that a lot of the time, those narratives that are really brutal uh, stem from fear. Mm. So just asking yourself, what are you afraid of? Just the mothering coming in being like, that was a really explicit and cruel thing to say to yourself. Is there a fear behind that? And then instead of approaching it like a war between two narratives, let that mothering voice kind of sit with this really in pain and terrified part of yourself and just let them explain themselves. I think too many of us see the inner critic as like this violent, cruel monster to be defeated. But in reality, I like to imagine it as like a seven-year-old version of me who's having a 
tantrum. <laughs> I love it. And like, how can I serve her? Because she's really scared and she doesn't want me to do X, Y, and Z because she doesn't think she's enough. And she doesn't want me to do that because what if this happens? And instead of me being like, you're being so mean to me, I hate you. I never want to see you again. That mothering voice can come in and be like, wow, you're clearly really upset and afraid. Can we talk about this? Like what's actually happening here? Can we go a little deeper? Why is it that you don't think you can have a rest? What fear is sitting behind that? Let's talk about it. And having that dialogue is the process of transformation. Dialogue is the process of transformation. Mm-hmm. I feel like already this is going to be one of the episodes of my own show that I listen to again and again. I <laughs> <laughs> have some great pull quotes. Oh, that's fantastic. We are responsible for our own journeys. We're responsible for our own transformations. And I think a lot of us just don't even start that journey because it's so overwhelming and we don't know how. And you are providing us with the first step in that journey. And I think that's so beautiful. Thank you. No, thank you. Wow. Such a beautiful thing to say. I'm really glad that we got to talk about mothering and journaling because that is so essential. Do you do your journaling in the morning before your creative work or what does that creative process look like for you? Yes. So I've played around with this, but the only thing that works for me is I journal first. Journal first, create immediately afterwards. So I'm not allowed to do any muggle work, any business stuff, no anything boring before my creativity. If I do that, I've f***ed up and my creativity won't get done. Like it has to be prioritized even among some most urgent of tasks. But it always comes after my journaling. Journaling is like um, it's like a little meeting with myself in the morning. Mm. And it's just like, hey, how are you going? What's happening? And I can't shift into that creative space until I've done that for some reason. Oh, I really appreciate that. You know, I've been listening to Unpublished once again and listening to you talk about work and rest and the balance that comes in there. What does your daily schedule look like now? Maybe I should ask about your thoughts on rest first. Yeah, but... no, we can talk about that. Okay. My thoughts on rest are big. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for me, my journey uh, with the hustle culture and the obsession and addiction to productivity has been really huge and it's going on to this very day. I'm finally seeing narrative changes. And just back to our conversation, like narrative changes take ages. So one of my journals probably takes three months to fill. And by the end of that three months, I can start seeing maybe hints of narrative change. But like I've been working on hustle and productivity for, for you know, 1,200 days. And I'm finally seeing some real evidence that narratives have shifted for me. But it is big work because this one culturally is just ingrained and you will see it everywhere and everyone will make you think that productivity equals worth and that rest is laziness. Um, And I had just soaked it into my skin. I don't know why I was so susceptible to those stories, but like I was obsessed with them. And if I wasn't working and I was already trying to do something so different with living a creative life, like I hated myself. I was like, you are a piece of shit. You think you can, you know, spend your days creating and today you didn't even create. And, you know, the language around that was just so violent. And I became so unwell because I was completely obsessed with this idea that productivity equaled worth. And I've just had to untangle it from my own narratives. Again, I've done it through that mothering voice. I've looked at those fears behind what, you know, the fears behind the addiction to productivity, um, how I validated myself through hustle. It's been a really big journey, but I want to live a life where I'm rested and I want to live a life where I can experience, you know, joy and slowness and work at my own tempo. 
And I'm finally not feeling guilty about that. I've been working on a very, very similar thing. I am probably, I don't know, I would say I'm probably among, among like the world's top 10 slowest writers ever. I love <laughs> And I just get so angry with myself. And every day, it's this internal battle of, oh, I hate myself. I hate my writing. I'm so slow. Everyone hates me. And then, no, it's okay. You're writing a 75,000 word project. You can't churn it out in just a couple months. You know. And so it's just this anger, justification, defensiveness. Like It all gets kind of mixed together. And It's a really yeah. messy journey untangling this particular narrative from our souls and it's not going to be neat at all but I love that Sarah and I just want you to know that I think that the fact that you're a slow writer is really beautiful and I know you won't hear that from literally anyone <laughs> yeah, <no. laughs> um, I think you know I love talking about how slow I want to live my life and the tempo that I want to honor because we just don't hear about it that often. We, and we don't hear about people being successful and creatively abundant and, you know, making loads of money and simultaneously doing it slowly and restfully. And that's the narrative that I want to make sure everyone understands. Like I'm living full time as a creative. I'm making money. I support me and my husband and I'm doing it slowly and restfully. And I feel really f- good you know, and this is possible. I love that. And I love that you said this is possible. Mm. I feel like a lot of people want it to be possible and like aspirationally say like one day I'd like to quit my job and be a full-time creator, Mm. but they don't think that it's actually possible. Like it's a pipe dream. It's, you know, whatever, but it's not because like you're doing it, I'm doing it. Yes. It's possible. I love us. And I love that we are speaking out. Like, I just want all, it's just so possible. Like, this is like my real drive. Like, I just want you to know how possible this is. It's more possible each day. Like, the world is just shifting in favor for creatives to be making money. And you don't have to hustle or burn out in order to achieve it. Yeah. One thing, if you are struggling with hustle culture, is Amy had recommended on one of her episodes Oh, what is it? Now I'm going to forget. It's by Devin Price. Oh, oh my gosh. Um, the laziness, the laziness lie? No, that's, she, they talk about laziness, laziness does not exist. Laziness does not exist. Yes. Thank you. Great. Okay. We, 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 we got there eventually. <laughs> and it's funny because I recommend this book to like everybody now, but it was so life-changing. I'll put a link to that in the show notes for today's episode as well. If you really want to start digging deep into why you believe you're worthless if you're not being productive, and if you want to start transitioning into a narrative that says, I am valid just how I am, and I am allowed to create at my own pace, laziness does not exist is a fantastic place to start your journey into that. Devin's incredible. We've got them on the podcast in the next month. I'm so excited to get to interview them and to to pick their brains they're a really good place to start if you're if you almost don't even believe that hustle culture is a real thing if you and like I really didn't believe it like that was part of the problem was I was like oh no I really think that hustle has moral value and like I yeah. needed someone to break it down for me to show me why it just is and Devon's books are really great place to start with that I love it and I love that you have them on your show I'm so excited <laughs> I'm so excited good thing so oh my god <laughs> Oh, I'm going to listen the heck out of that one. Yeah, no, I was in the same place as you. I thought actually hustle was good. And I I have a new episode of right now coming out in just a little bit here about, you know, how we drive ourselves into burnout thinking that we're doing something like morally, I don't know, what's the opposite of reprehensible, morally good, morally, you know, 
It was pure. It rewarded for it. I only felt like I deserved good things if I was exhausted. Mm-hmm. Like you have to sacrifice yourself essentially to get anything. And like, that's not what it's about. Oh, I could oh, we talk about this forever. This podcast has gone for a very long time. Welcome to our 10 hour episode. <laughs> I'm Sarah. <laughs> oh, I, I have so many questions though. And I don't, I really, I mean, I would love to keep you here for 10 hours, but also I respect <laughs> your time and I want to actually like show that instead of just telling it. So, so, Hey, Hey, I'm really excited. The rules upheld by no one is your historical fiction book. It's coming out. Um, I'm not hundred percent sure when we'll release this podcast right now as of what is it? August, August of 2021. It is available for pre-release and it will soon be available. Just I think Amazon and maybe some yeah. other places. It will be everywhere, basically. At the moment, it's just a slow rollout. So at the moment, it's just Amazon for pre-release. But next week, September 1st is its release date. So she should be out and about. Oh, wonderful. September 1st. Tell us. So you had worked on this book mm. a long time ago, and it is just now being published. Was there a lot of like downtime between when you finished writing it? Or did you revise it amidst all the sending out and rejection letters. Tell us a little bit about what this beautiful book's journey looked like. I wrote this book during NaNoWriMo actually in 2017 and she just fell out of me. Like it was just the easiest book in the world to write. I spent six years writing the book before it and this book fell out in, you know, in like six weeks. And I mean, the first draft and then it took, you know, revising. Yeah. (laughs) Beautiful editor to to shape her up and it, but it was a really for me it was such a quick write and I just felt so good and so so what I wanted to do and I've written two more historical fiction novels since then like it's really my genre I love it so it was a quick writing process and, and then it was a quick submissions process too I submitted it after I worked with my editor I submitted it to uh, publishers afterwards and that's when the rejection started rolling in. It got picked up for about a week and then it got dropped, which was a wild journey. A few people who have been following me for a long time remember that day on my Instagram because it was like a hot mess of, <laughs> of an Amy, as you can imagine. Um, so that was that was a lot. And then after that, I think it was just after that rejection, after she got dropped, I just let her go. And that was the gap. So the actual writing process, submission process, rejection process probably all happened in a process of seven or eight months. Oh, wow. And then the years between that have been just me navigating what it felt like to be so unseen, what it felt like to be rejected in that way. It really, it really affected me. And like, I just, I'm, I sit with that. It really did affect me. And I think a lot of writers feel shame for how badly rejection feels. And they're like, oh, mm. have thick skin, got to have thick skin. It's a really difficult project and process to, to navigate. And for a long time, it just, it just sat with me. And I knew I, I had this idea that I didn't want to self-publish because self-publishing was going to mean that I gave up. Mm. And that was the narrative I had to fight. And that was three and a, three and a bit years of fighting that narrative. And now we are here. <laughs> What a ride. It does it feel very strange to be promoting a book that you wrote, you know, essentially at a different stage in your life? Is there like a disconnect there for you? It does actually. It's a very intimate book. You know, it's a very it's a story of you know about sexuality and sex and intimacy and, and it was a real story of 
a younger version of myself. And I still really appreciate that I told this story and I still relate to it deeply, but it is funny connecting back to a much younger part of myself. I'm still extraordinarily proud of it. Like I, I personally think it's (laughs) well-written and I'm proud of my younger self for doing such a good job, but yeah, it is strange. Um, I've been rereading it and practicing it because I'm doing an audible version of it. So I feel closely connected to her again because I've had to read her so much, which is really nice. And I am so excited to do the audible version. It's like, I don't know why, but this is like my dream come true. I've always wanted to narrate audiobooks. I love this. Oh, and you have a great voice for it. Oh, this is going to be fantastic. Thank you. I'm so excited. Oh my gosh. So I've noticed that you refer to your book as she. Can you tell me a little bit about this? I've always called my books by their main character names. And so I've always called this book Elizabeth. Uh, The Rules Upheld by No One wasn't a name that I managed to whisked from the from the ether a few months ago really so she's been Elizabeth for four years and so that's how her pronouns came into existence because they're Elizabeth pronouns yeah and it suits her does that change do you think how you relate to the to the story and to the book itself as in the pronouns or the fact that I call I call her Elizabeth oh both both either or both it does make me feel like it's almost like not my story it's Elizabeth's story because I mm. I've in my historical fiction novels that I've written, they're all first person or very protagonist led, very internal world books about how we grow as people. And so they do feel owned by that main character. And so, yeah, Elizabeth, it feels like Elizabeth's book. But I like using pronouns because they do feel like little entities in themselves, mm. you know, and they call them like my book baby. And I like referring to them. I like just giving them a little bit of a human quality. Reminds me how important they are. I've heard other writers refer to their books as like, oh, this is my baby. This is my book. Mm -hmm. But I've never heard a writer before who referred to it as its own entity like that and and not (laughs) in relation to themselves, like as a possession that they owned or created. Yeah, interesting. So I think that's fascinating. Yeah, I've never thought about it in that way. It does feel very separate to me, especially with all the time that's passed. Yes. Yeah, it's really interesting. She's my little gal. (laughs) Oh, I love it. You said you have a couple other books, fiction in the works moving forward. So interestingly, after Elizabeth got rejected, I kept writing. I didn't start writing fiction. I went straight on to a new book. She's called Maud and she's about witches, the late 16th century. So that's fun. Just over here geeking um, out. like <laughs> She's nearly done as well. Like She just needs um, a copy edit and she could be whisked on her way. And I'm working on Jack at the moment, which is a story about, it's a mystery historical fiction. I've always been obsessed with solving crimes and I've always been a big, like, what, what genre is this? What am I, what am I trying to say? Not mystery, crime. True crime, mystery. Yeah. I don't thriller? know. Like it's murder and it's oh, solved. Yes. <laughs> um, kind of things. But, um, so it's a, like a detective historical fiction, which I'm writing right now, which is really interesting because it's a bit of a genre change, uh, but it's so much fun. And that's set in the six, early 1600s. Uh, and Jack, who is my detective. I love it. So you have a background in history. I do. I'm trying to like figure out a way to word this question without like leading you to a very specific answer. Did you start telling stories that were historical before you got interested in the academic side of it? I'm not asking this well. I grew up in the UK and I 
was absolutely obsessed with the history side of things since forever. I loved it. I would daydream about it. I just thought the stories were so magical. My area of interest is like 1400s to late 1600s. I've just always been entranced by that. So that's always been a part of me for a very long time. But I went to uni and studied medieval history, specializing in medieval Uh, sexuality, pornography, and sex work, which is just the most niche, most wonderful, full of stories kind of area to buckle down into. um, Yeah, it was addictive for me. Like, I just couldn't believe how many stories and like also not super investigated areas of history Mm. that were just, you know, ripe for the picking. And there was no way that it wasn't going to lead me to write many novels. It was just so fruitful and fascinating. I loved it. It's it's so interesting that that gives you so much fodder for that. So I majored in English and like the writing side of things. And that really doesn't leave you, you know, with a whole lot of rich historical context <laughs> yeah. to draw from. So I love that. I love that. You have two projects in the works now. It sounds like you kind of have like a pretty good system of I write this book. I write the next one. I write the next one. What was your I mean, aside from the rejections, which are awful and painful. Mm. What has been one of the things that you've struggled with in the craft of writing? Yeah. Okay. I've gotten very good at first drafts, Mm. but that's never where I've struggled. I do a 500 word a day situation for first drafts and it's just a really easy way for me to show up, get the work done. And it's really, it makes very little sense, big plot holes, but it just happens. So I started my, I started Jack only a few months ago and, and there's, you know, there's 20,000 words there and it's literally just 500 words a day. Like it blows me away. Really big fan of the small goals each day, but the editing process, I find much harder to dissect into small goals each day. Um, it's just not as easy or tangible to make small goals out of. <laughs> um, yeah. I find it harder. And also I'm not very good at the smaller details. I can get really frustrated. Um, and obviously I've just like landed myself with a complete show of first draft which you know was really fun to create but also makes no sense and so that especially second draft it can be very overwhelming for me and I'm learning how to break that down into smaller sections but that's definitely where I'll find myself procrastinating the most Mm, procrastination (laughs) can you can you tell us a little bit about your thoughts on procrastination please I can I think I have a lot of thoughts about procrastination (laughs) Well, and Amy has a book about procrastination too, which we'll link to in the show notes. Yeah, so. I have a lot of thoughts about this. When I work with creatives, and obviously I've worked with a lot of creatives now, like nearly, I would say like 99% of people, the, mo- the biggest issue is procrastination. It's really common. I think a lot of the times it doesn't need to be a problem as in like we don't need to be as concerned with it as we are. You know, we are going to procrastinate. It is a part of being a creative. We don't need to be a to ourselves every single time it happens like it just is going to happen but I do think that a lot of us can become stuck in cycles of consistent self-betrayal where we lose faith in ourselves we have absolutely no trust in our own word and we have a very broken relationship with ourselves and procrastination in a a consistent pattern can really cause a rupture in our own faith in ourselves and trust in ourselves and that's where we need to really look at it and find some healing And for me, the healing came in the small goals each day, which is the perfect way to rebuild that trust. You say you're going to do something, then you do it. Incredible. The next day you say you're going to do something and you do it. I'm not talking about a lot. I'm talking about like a hundred words or I'm talking about 
you sit at the computer for 10 minutes, we're just proving to ourselves that we're taking our words seriously and we're healing a relationship that was broken again, again, again. Hmm. Hearing you talk about that is really, really mind blowing because I think to some degree, I wasn't even aware of how to trust myself and that I could learn to trust myself again and that you learn to do that by building habits and proving to yourself that you can trust yourself. Just this issue of trust that's tied up in procrastination has just been incredibly mind blowing to me. Yeah. It was really revelationary to me too when I realized that I was so nervous of my own promises. And I was so, every time, okay, I was like, I used to be really big on making like ridiculous word counts each day. Be like, okay, well, tomorrow I'm going to write 3,000 words. And like uh, the nerves and like, oh my God, I'm going to let myself down. Oh my God, I hate myself. I know I'm not going to be able to do that. You know, that narrative is so damaging to yourself, to the relationship you have with yourself. You know, and I just have no clue why I would do that. Like I was looking back on my stories um, like my archived stories on Inspired to Write. And I'm just sitting there telling people, I'm like, tomorrow I'm going to write 3,000 words. And I'm like, why are you saying this? Like, you're not. <laughs> no, no. So what do you tell yourself now? Um, and have you noticed that there is an issue with being aspirational or achievement oriented with having a smaller word count that you're reaching for? As in, is it harder for me to reach for success with small goals or is it harder for me to be? Is it hard for you to make peace with the fact that like maybe as somebody who is ambitious? Yes, it'd be great. How do you reconcile like a small word count? Like, oh, I should be reaching for more. It's a great question. I am so much more successful and I've achieved so much more by having just the most pitiful goals. (laughs) I've learned that because it's true, you know, that's, again, you have to prove it to yourself. You have to show it. You have to do it long enough to realize, oh yeah, this is way better than these ridiculous goals. I am extraordinarily ambitious. I just have a drive to want to create, connect, make impact. And it's just within me. And I satisfy all of those desires through small things each day. And I finish books with small things each day. I connect with people with small things each day. Like it's just the only way I've ever achieved real connection and real success is by doing it in really, really embarrassingly small goals each day. And we have to try it to believe it, but it's real. Yeah. So where would you suggest that someone starts? So somebody has a full-time job and they're they're like, I want to write 3000 words a day. And I only have like an hour before work. So like, what would be a reasonable place for them to start? This is going to be really individual. And I think a lot of people love to, um, if I say I do 500 words, so they're like, okay, I'm going to do 500 words. But I'm telling you, like, that might not suit you at all. 100 words is incredible. And you need to make sure that it's something that you can do. That's the only requirement. It needs to be small enough that you can do it. Hmm without any issues. So like a hundred words a day, I, I have creators I work with who do a hundred words a day. And again, like books still get written. Mm-hmm. You can grow that as you learn to trust yourself. But the whole part of this right now is learning to trust yourself, learning that you take yourself seriously. This is about self-respect. Mm-hmm. This is about learning that you are respecting your creative ambitions, your creative desires. And we do that by showing up consistently. So it just doesn't matter what your work count is. If we're talking specifically writers here. It doesn't matter what your word count is. All I want you to do is be able to do it. And you're going to be able to grow it over time. 
but your ego is going to have a big fight about it. And you need to sit down. And again, I would say journal about it, like listen to that ego, because there's going to be fear behind that. And you need to listen to that fear. You need to take care of yourself and mother yourself through that fear so that you can do this hard work, which is do a small amount of work each day. Beautiful. I want to wrap things up. Amy, where can people find you and your work and your podcast and your books? And how can we support you? (laughs) Okay. The main place that you can find all those things is on my website, which is amymcnee.com. And my name's spelled A-M-I-E-M-C-N-E-E. But you can also find me on Instagram at inspired to write. There's probably the main two places. As Sarah said, my uh, podcast is called Unpublished. And I do that with my husband, James. But you can probably find that all from website or Instagram. Wonderful. Wonderful. And can you leave us with one of your favorite pieces of writing advice? Ooh, already wanked on and on about the small work. <laughs> no, I mean, another one that I absolutely have to abide to and I didn't get a chance to mention is you have to let it be. And I always say, if you can't point to your big pile of art, then you're not truly doing the work. So, alongside of doing the 100 words a day, if you are sitting there trying to make them the best 100 words you've ever written in your life, then you are not doing the work. And again, you're letting yourself down. It is a requirement of being a creative that we make bad things. That doesn't mean they have to stay bad. That doesn't mean they have to see the light of day. But it is absolutely a requirement that you make work you're not happy with. And the fact that you think you're exempt is ridiculous. Is that that ego again? Yeah, that's quite true. Mm-hmm. You know, we have, I mean, perfectionism and procrastination are always going to be so tightly entwined. That ego is going to want you to write so many words per day and, cheat, and they're going to want you to have written, you know, to the highest quality. And they are the very thing that is stopping you from being the most profound and abundant author that you can be. Amazing. Amy, you are just a glowing, beautiful beacon of delight. I am so happy that we got to hear some of your words on the show today. (laughs) Please do visit the show notes for today's episode. I'm gesticulating wildly, hitting my (laughs) microphone. Click on the links, check out Amy and her amazing work, especially uh, her Instagram and her website, as she mentioned. And Amy, thank you again for spending time with us and sharing space with us today and sharing your story as well. We truly appreciate it. Oh my God, Sarah, this was all I needed today. Honestly, I'm so grateful for you. That just makes my day. So this is fantastic. (laughs) 